Uh, we had daylight savings time last night, right? Who enjoyed that extra hour of sleep? I know. I did. I needed it last night. So, uh, speaking of which, last night, I went to bed around midnight, and as soon as my head hit the pillow, my neighbor's dogs just started barking. Like, there's two of them going back and forth for like a good solid 15 minutes. And I'm just like, why? <laughs> I'm already going to get limited sleep tomorrow. And, you know, obviously I now have the extra hour of sleep. But I was just like, man, I just need to pray real quick. So I prayed to the Lord. I was like, Lord, I, know, uh, I just ask that you uh, quit this uh, barking dog next to me so I can get some sleep. And I was like, soon as I like, I didn't even finish my sentence. I just stopped barking. And I was like, man, this is crazy. It's just a crazy reminder. And I was reminded in that moment of how distracted we can get from the Lord. And in that moment, my focus was like snapped back right to him. And I was like, dang, I've just been so distracted and distracted by the stupid barking dogs. And just in that moment, I was just reminded of God's goodness and just spent some more time in prayer uh, preparing for this morning. Uh, And it was just good. It was a good time with the Lord. So I'm thankful for that extra hour of sleep because I'm not dead this morning. So uh, as I'm in front of (laughs) y'all. So uh, with that, speaking of getting distracted, uh, I wanted to open up with a funny little story uh, that I have from when I'm back home, uh, from where I'm from, which is Allen, Texas. Uh, my family is actually here this morning, so that's where they still live right now. And a few years ago, we adopted this corgi puppy. Her name is Opal, cutest thing on the planet. Uh, really disobedient, though. Uh, honestly, she's like really sweet, follows commands, but just not the most obedient. And so. With that, um, very sweet. I think she very much has doggy ADD. But um, so a big thing she likes to do, my family has about an acre of land that they're on. And so she gets to run around in that backyard. It's fenced, obviously. Uh, and she has the time of her life out there. One of her favorite activities is chasing rabbits to the yard because there's a lot of rabbits in that area. And she'll just go ballistic, wear herself out. It's really funny to watch. But... This one night, I was taking her out to do her doggy business before uh, we go to bed, obviously. And she sees a rabbit. And I'm like, okay, she'll chase it. She's within the confines of this fence. She'll be fine. She can get some energy out before she goes to bed. But someone had left open the gate. And of course, the rabbit could have gone through the fence where there's openings, plenty for it to fit, but it goes right through the open gate. And Opal, Opal fi- follows close behind. And she's running and running. I'm trying to run after her, but I'm not fast enough to catch a dog that's nearly as fast as a rabbit. So paint that picture, if you will. But I'm calling her name, calling, 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 and she's not coming back. She's just super focused on this rabbit. And then all of a sudden, I hear a bunch of coyotes, a pack of coyotes. So uh, I don't know where they're coming from, but I don't know if y'all know what sound coyotes make. They, they make like a little yip-yap sound. They kind of sound like they're laughing a little bit. And she knows that sound, right? She, she recognizes it. She knows, oh, that is danger. I don't know necessarily what it is, but I'm not going to mess with it. Yeah, there, there you go. But <laughs> she's uh, maybe making some coyotes. So, um, But with that, uh, Opal obviously turns immediately around and comes running back towards me and hides behind me because she knows at the end of the day, I'm more powerful, and I, I mean, I love Opal, and I'm more powerful than a coyote can ever be, and I'll, if it really comes down to it, I'm going to lay the smack down on a coyote, if it 
you know, lay down, smack down. So with that, uh, I don't like putting myself as the Jesus character in my illustrations, but I think it kind of just warms us up to this idea of uh, looking at the world and just being distracted from who the Lord is. And uh, I think with that, obviously funny story gets us laughing, but this is how we become like with God. We get distracted by the rabbits of the world and God is calling after us to turn back towards him and we ignore him. He knows better. He gives us his commands for a reason. It's not to control us. It's not to put us in a place or a box. Uh, It's to give us freedom, right? Because he knows what sin does. He knows that it ultimately brings pain and hurt. But as people... Obviously, we don't like to listen until we're actually faced the consequences of our sin. So, um, this morning, we'll be looking at one of my favorite passages. If you ask any of my college students, uh, they say that's one of my favorite sayings to say about every single passage I teach. It's my favorite passage. But for real, though, this is actually my favorite passage. So, we're going to be in the parable of the prodigal son, uh, or in some translations, uh, it's parable of the lost son. So, uh, if you could turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, will be primarily looking there. So, whenever you get there, say a hearty amen. Amen. I'll give you all some time to turn there. So, uh, while we're still turning there, uh, I thought I'd just open us up in a word of prayer. Um, If y'all could just bow your heads with me. Uh, Father God, I have to lift this time before us to you. I pray that you allow us to be focused during this time, that you remove any and all distractions that may distract us from your message. Lord, put your spirit of understanding on our hearts. God, I ask that you change lives today in the crazy ways that you do, the crazy way that you change my life. I pray that that happens today. Not because of what I say, or my opinions, or me, but because of you, Lord, because you're so good. And while we keep our heads bowed, I ask that, uh, church, that you pray for God to please teach me. And also, if you would, I I ask that you would pray for me. Pray that I would uh, be helpful during this time, that the message that I bring is truly God's message that he wants us to hear and that the Lord would use me. Father, we love you, and we pray all of this in your son's name. Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, with that, uh, before we really get into the nitty-gritty of reading this passage, I want to give you all some background. Uh, One of my favorite things in teaching God's word is looking at the surrounding scripture and context, and considering the historical context of whatever passage we're looking at this time. So, uh, this, the parable of the prodigal son is really a part of a bigger parable. It's, uh, if you look at it before, you'll see the parable of, uh, I, I think it's the lost sheep, or the one out of the 99, uh, and then the parable of the lost coin. So, this really is just one story. Uh, to give you all the context, Jesus is currently talking to Pharisees. Uh, he's, or he's actually really having dinner with some tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees come to him and say, why do you dine with these sinners? And his response 
is these three parables into one. And essentially, the synopsis that God is, or not, that Jesus is saying is, let me tell you about my father in response to them questioning about him eating with sinners. Let me tell you about my father because God encompasses all these parables. They're all of God just meeting people where they're at and finding them when they're lost, right? That's essentially what all these are. From this, we can gather God redeems, God renews, and God restores what man thinks is worthless. So that's what we can infer from these passages. That's what Jesus is saying. So with that, we're going to finally read some Bible. Um, So let's go and get into it, starting in verse 11. It says, Jesus continued, there is a man who who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of this estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, the, uh, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So, with this passage, this short part of this passage, uh, we see a wild time occur, right? We see this first part. In these first few verses, we see the interaction between the father and the younger son. We see the younger son demand his father to give him his inheritance. At this time, uh, often the younger son or the younger, younger sibling would get one-third of the inheritance, while the older or the firstborn, in this case the older son, would get two-thirds of the estate. While this was well within the younger son's rights to demand, it was still very disrespectful. Imagine, it's like going to your parents or your father and saying, I don't care that you're alive right now. I don't care about the relationship that we have. I would rather you be dead so I can get my money, so I can get what's due to me. That's what the younger son is saying here, the father. Even though it's not illegal by Jewish law, it is still very wrong, obviously. And the father was well within his rights to rebuke the boy. He could have told him, no, too bad, so sad. Get out of here. I'm kicking you out of my estate. Go live somewhere else, yada, yada, yada. But the father grants his request. So the boy soon leaves for a foreign country and is living a lavish lifestyle. Doesn't really go into much detail about what that lifestyle looks like, um, but I can imagine uh, it was probably very impressive, probably filled with prostitutes, alcohol, drugs, whatever at the time constituted as a lavish lifestyle back then, a lifestyle of rebellion. And it had, to been have, it had to have been that way if he wanted to leave the security of his father's house, right? He was in his father's house. He didn't have to worry about adult responsibilities. He didn't have to pay rent. He didn't have to pay for food. Uh, it was all given to him. He had servants waiting on his hand day in and day out. Um, but I don't know why the son ultimately decided to leave. You know, the, the fa- father and the son could have had a rocky relationship you know, there could have been a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling. You know, who knows the, 
son could have felt that the father was trying to control him, trying to tell him what to do, or maybe he didn't feel like he had freedom. I don't know. Ultimately, I do know that he left for a lavish lifestyle. And I do believe when people sin, it's because they are not wanting to trust God. Ultimately, that's what sin comes down to. Even the most righteous person, when they sin, it's ultimately when we're faced with temptation and we choose sin, it's because we're not trusting the Lord. We're not trusting what he says. We're not trusting his goodness. So uh, we think oftentimes in the face of temptation, God is withholding something from us or that he wants to control us, like I said earlier with the Father. And whatever we're tempted with is really tempting or it's really enticing. It's gotta be, right? That's our sin nature is where we desire that. Literally, it's in our flesh. So this brings me to my first point, which is, Sin is fun until it's not. So, I know what you're thinking, probably, Chris, what are you talking about? Sin is fun in the church? (gasps) Yes, it has to be for us to want to leave God's security, right? It has to be enticing. And we see from this passage that it was fun until it wasn't. We see this wild ride of um, the, the son fulfilling his selfish desires but ultimately it is temporary and causes more damage than good it brings, right? That's the whole idea behind sin is fun until it's not. I think all of us in our testimonies can tell how sin was fun until it wasn't. I know I can. Uh, But God, in all his wisdom, doesn't want that pain for us. He knows how much uh, pain sin brings and the damage it causes. And the son, in this parable, experienced it very personally. Because he lost everything to his sin. He lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his wealth. Yeah, we don't see his friends there, right? Them. He's alone in the dirt, wanting to eat the slop from the pigs. Living in, the t- in sin for a time was fun until it wasn't, until it took everything away from him. So, and just as I go into this, breaking down this illustration a little bit more, I think Jesus does a beautiful job of showing where sin takes us. Right? Whenever we follow that, you know, oh, it looks fun, but then we see where it leads. So, the son, just kind of break down this illustration a little bit more. The son had to be incredibly desperate to take on the job that he did. The text states that he's in a foreign land, and Jews did not own pigs as livestock. We can kind of further determine that this is a foreign land. And the Jewish people, the reason why they didn't own pigs as livestock was because they thought pigs were very unclean due to their Jewish law, due to what God says they believe that, Jewish, uh, that pigs are unclean. So he's not only feeding and taking care of the pigs as a Jewish man, uh, but he is considered eating straight from their trough because he is so hungry. Since he is in a foreign land, the owner of the pigs is most likely a Gentile, as we see that Jews did not own pigs back then. So no Jew... One of God's chosen people, that's who the Israelites were back then, they're God's chosen set-apart people, has enslaved himself to a Gentile, a sinner, back in that day, willingly. And that's just a beautiful, or not a beautiful picture, but amazing picture of sin is fun until it's not. The prodigal son, the man who was the son of a very great and wealthy man, 
is at the lowest point in his life right now and doesn't know how he got there. Sin always promises more than it takes, or it gives. It takes you further than you wanted to go and leaves you worse off than you were before. Sin takes us to a place where we're on the trough of pigs wanting to eat their slop. I think that's just an amazing picture that Jesus paints for us that that's where it leads us, right? That's where sin leads us, and he doesn't want that for us. I think, again, a lot of us can relate to this situation. I know as I was reading this section of this passage, I thought of a very similar moment in my life. See, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior at a very young age. I was in second grade, but for a good chunk of my life, I was addicted to pornography, just honestly speaking. This is church. This is where healing takes place, uh, and I'm going to use my testimony to further declare God's goodness. But So I'm sorry if you know, talking about this stuff kind of makes you uncomfortable. That's not my heart, but we're getting into it. So this addiction carried into my college days, and even when I'd rededicate my life to Christ, I found myself discouraged because I wondered if I am a new creation in Christ, like 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, how come I'm still stuck in the sin? And I found myself discouraged and stuck. And eventually I got to a point where the addiction got worse. And I hated the feeling of coming to community over and over and over again, confessing my sin, and still feeling stuck, like I had nowhere to go. So through going to a young adult ministry called The Porch um, in Dallas, I heard about a 12-step program called Regen. Uh, it's essentially recovery in Christ. Um, for months, I thought about going, but in my stubbornness, I didn't want to swallow my pride and go uh, because I thought, I'm young. I don't need to go to a 12-step program. You know, I, I can do this on my own. I praise God for his patience in that and uh, his willingness to understand and take his time and work in my heart, but... That's, that's what pride does. So, um, But with that, uh, one day I was in my college dorm and I prayed to God that if I sinned in this way again, I would go to Regen. And God's grace, amazing grace, he said, bet. And, uh, you know, the next time happened again and you remind me of what I said. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go look this up. See where they're meeting. This was at, on Monday at 5.30 and I found out that Regen meets at 6.30 on Mondays. So I was like, Man, I really don't want to go tonight. Tired. I've been at school all day. You know, it's a long drive to Dallas. I'm tired, hungry, want to have dinner. And I almost didn't go. But then I decided to. I was like, you know what? I need to go. And so I went. And let me tell you, church, when I walked into Regen with so much shame, uh, God comforted me in those moments. He met me with compassion. And He gave me the strength to push forward through Regen. I was able to see the consequences of my sin and who I was hurting. I also learned that ultimately I am the one that chooses the sin uh, and I had to get to a place where I hated my sin, right? And to starve my flesh's desire for pornography. I had to leave the troughs and the slop to the pigs. If you're in the same place, I'm begging you, church, leave the slop to the pigs. That if you're in the same place I was, it's not going to get you anywhere. Guess what? It's going to get you in pig's feces eating slop, right? That's what this picture paints. Sin is fun until it's not. So 
sin promises so much but takes everything, as I said earlier. Sadly, if we look at this parable, though, and listen to my testimony, this, the leaving the slop to the pigs will only happen when you've experienced a lot of pain, when you are at the lowest point and have experienced everything and lost a lot of things. So let me continue reading on for us so I can end us, uh, end us on time, get us to lunch. So, uh, Starting in verse 17, it says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So end in there real quick. What we see in this next part of the passage is that the son remembers how good it was at his father's house. He's already a servant. He's already a slave. He might as well go where he has plenty of food to eat, a warm bed to sleep, and work as a servant, pay off his debt. Um, We see that the son regrets his actions and knows that I've hurt my father. I've hurt my family. I've sinned against heaven. And he wants to pay back his debt. But what happens next is beautiful. Let's read the rest of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Verse 21, the the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. With this passage, it brings me to point number two. It takes failure and rebellion to see God's grace. Um, So with this, his father uh, sees him coming home from the distance and is filled with compassion. I think this kind of paints a beautiful picture, another beautiful picture of uh, the father this is not the actions of a man who is holding on to resentment and hating his son. This is an actions of a man who's forgiven his son. He probably forgave him immediately whenever the son asked for his inheritance, right? And I just think, I look at that, that phrase that says, while he was still a long way off, it makes me think that the father was just sitting at the window looking for his son to come home because he was worried. He's scared. He wanted him home. And I glance over that so, or I glance over this section so often, but whenever I read it, it just reminded me, or and what I did some digging, is that when you pay attention to detail, you could see some beautiful things erupt from this. Uh, but uh, in, this, in this time, it's important to realize that adults did not run. It was not common for men or women to run because it was viewed as childish. Children ran. Children ran and played. And once he grew up, he didn't run anymore. He walked everywhere. But the father doesn't care because he's so overwhelmed with emotion and compassion. He's just happy to see his son home. Isn't that beautiful? Remember what I told you earlier that this Jesus is telling us this is what our, our father, our God does? This is how he responds. He doesn't care what other people think. It's because it's his son, right? So the son tries to bargain with his father and work his way back into his father's good graces by saying, take me as a servant, a slave. But 
Instead of berating him and telling him all the wrong things he did, he welcomed him with open arms. He didn't say, how dare you sin? How dare you come back to me? You're crawling on your hands and knees. He said, welcome home. Here's your, here's your uh, ring for your finger. Here's sandals for your feet. This is a picture of a, son, or a father restoring his son, not a father accepting a slave. Slaves didn't wear sandals on their feet. They didn't have a ring designating the family crest on it, right? That's what we see here. Um, but, and then he also, like, like I said, he restored him to being his son when, he showed, when the son showed that he was sorry, when he was repentant. It's the same thing with God. We try to barter for forgiveness and his love, but he gives it freely. That's the beautiful picture that we see here. We are children of God, not slaves working for their master's approval. We are children of God, not slaves working for their master's approval. This is who we are. We're not servants. We're not here to work for God's love. He gives it freely. So, like I said earlier, I think we can infer from this text that these are not the actions of a man holding resentment against his son. Um, and because his father forgave him easily, he's able to reconcile to the son. Quick note on forgiveness and reconciliation here. Uh, let's define those two terms because I've been kind of like throwing those out. Um, because so many people think that these are one and the same, that these ideas are the same, but they're not. Jesus calls us always to forgive those who wrong us. And the father immediately forgave the son uh, for his sins, for what he did. I think a lot of people, including myself, really struggle with the idea of forgiveness because we think that means restore the relationship. And no, it doesn't. Forgiveness, in its simplest definition, is to cancel the debt of the person who hurts you. It's to forfeit or let go of the right to have to get back at them and hurt the person who hurt you. Reconciliation is to restore the relationship of the person who hurts you when they show repentance, when they show that they're sorry, right? That's the difference between those two things. And then repentance, and that doesn't mean that you have to restore everyone who says they're sorry because repentance means, and it's simplest, I mean, another definition for you, repentance is life change, right? It's saying sorry, but there's a clear turnaround. There's a clear life change, I'm not saying to restore everyone who's hurt you in your past if they ask for it, because sometimes it's not realistic. Should you go back to an abusive spouse if they say, I'm sorry, and you know, then the beatings start again? No, that's not what I'm saying. There should be clear change that you can see and that you can measure. There should be a track record of faithfulness to restore that relationship. Because ultimately, you don't want to be hurt again, but you still should let go of the pain you still should forgive, but that doesn't mean you're reestablishing the relationship. So this is important because this reflects our relationship with Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Our Father, God, forgave our sins because Jesus paid for it, but we do not, have to, we do not receive that payment or being restored to being children of God until we show repentance and believe. Jesus already did the actions, action of forgiveness before we even acknowledge or were conceived. But uh, if, 
wait, sorry, I lost my place. Um, I think I totally just read the thing. Anyways, so God modeled this for us perfectly. If we believe and confess with our mouths, that's how we accept Jesus' payment, right? It's already been paid for, but we don't want to receive that payment until we show repentance, until there's life change, until you surrender to this. If you're hearing this and all this seems impossible for you to do, to forgive, to reconcile, uh, I think you need to ask yourself, do I really know Jesus? It's okay if you can't answer that question or if that answer is no, but it's the most important question you can ask in your life. If that is, if that is you, don't worry about trying to implement everything we've talked about today. The most important thing you can do is, sorry, totally, I hate the cutoffs for these pages. Accept Jesus' payment on the cross. Come in from your hurt and leave it at the feet of Jesus. That's the most important thing you can do today if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Don't focus on everything else. The, what is important is that you receive Jesus' goodness, his eternal life, his gift. So with that, we'll go and move on a little bit. Uh, so I uh, already read that part, but we see, oh wait, no, verses 25 through 30, we're gonna go and start off on that. So it says, meanwhile, the, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The uh, older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, after all these years, I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your wealth Uh, your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. This next part of this passage, we see the older son is bitter and angry that his younger brother was restored to his former position after squandering one-third of his father's wealth away. So from this response, or we begin to see him claim his own self-righteousness Rather than being happy to see his younger brother, he's going back and saying, look at all these things I've done. I've never been treated the same way. He begins to uh, say that he stayed with the father and never got the same treatment. His son left, and he got all the good stuff, right? From the son's response, we can assume that these feelings aren't new. He's probably held on to this bitterness for a long time. Maybe it was because his brother disowned the family, or maybe it was because his father spent a lot of time worried about the younger brother waiting for him to come back. Ultimately, I don't know what the reason is. The passage doesn't say, but it is obvious that these feelings are not new. This leads me to my final point, which is bitterness distracts us from God's grace. So with that, let's go and read verses 31 through 32, wrapping up this. It says, My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So with that, uh, just to kind of expand upon this point of bitterness distracts us from God's grace. The grace that we miss from the Lord, from what we can tell from this passage, is his presence, 
and his redemption of others. That's the grace that we miss when we hold on to bitterness. We miss that. The older son was literally able to be in his father's presence at all times. And he took that for granted. The father says that everything he is and everything he has belongs to his son. And he missed the goodness of that because of his bitterness. He missed his father's love. And he missed the redemption of his, of his younger brother, right? Because of this bitterness. I believe a lot of us here in this church are either the older son or will be at one point in our lives. We already are living in God's commands, but we think that just because we are obedient, we deserve, should be given every desire of our heart. But that's not the case. Sorry. But I'm not saying that God doesn't do good things for us, but he works in giving us the things we need, the things that give him glory. That's what he gives us ultimately. The younger son needed to see that no matter what he did, his father always loves him, and his father showed him that by forgiving his debt and restoring him and throwing a celebration. That's what the younger son needed to see in his sin. The older son needed to see his father restore his younger brother so that his bitterness could be relieved. And so that the, younger son, or the older son would see that no matter what he did, he get the same treatment. That everything he is and everything he has that his father has is his. <sighs> Bitterness is so much easier to hold on to than to forgive and let go. It is so scary how easy it is to let yourself be blinded by bitterness, by resentment towards a person that it cripples your capacity to love. It's scary how easy it is that, for that to happen. If we can't come to forgive people who aren't close to us of the pain they've caused us, how are we supposed to forgive, expect to forgive someone close to us? A spouse, a family member, a friend, a close friend. Let me tell you, it hurts. Uh, it hurts so much more to be hurt by someone you deeply care for and that deeply cares for you. But guess what? They're imperfect people. They're sinful. That's what the gospel is. That no one is good enough. But by what Jesus did on the cross, you can be made new. That's what the gospel is. And people are going to hurt you when they're close. And so it requires us forgiving because we were first forgiven by Jesus. I don't know what baggage everyone is carrying in this morning, but maybe you're hurt by a loved one. Maybe a family member did or said something, or maybe a friend didn't show up when they're supposed to be there. Maybe the church hurt you, or someone abused you in a way that you don't know how to recover from. I understand your pain because I was there. I was there. I was abused as a child, and I didn't understand it at the time, but it was still my responsibility, or I didn't know how to recover from it, but it was still uh, my responsibility to heal from it. I'm not saying that whatever was done to you is your fault. I'm not saying God is not trying to uh, punish you. He's not trying to do that. But, and he's not done with you either. I say that in response to the hurt that you may be feeling. The only reason I healed from my pain 
It was because God gave me the strength to forgive and he healed me when I was ready to do so. He may not be responsible for whoever hurts you, but it is your responsibility to forgive and heal in God's grace. That's what you're responsible for. The reason we are responsible for showing Jesus' love in this way is because he showed it to us in our darkest moments. Before we even knew who he was, before we were even conceived. Think about that. He did that action before we were even born, before the thought of us even happened. He also commands us to do so because we live from this victory. We cannot live in a victim mentality because we live from Jesus' victory over sin and death. Uh, as I conclude, as I wrap up this, the worship band can come up here and start getting set up. I think the most important part of this passage is looking at the father's response to his two sons. He responded in the same way to both rebellion and bitterness. That's what the title slide said at the beginning, right? The father's response to bitterness and rebellion. And this response was compassion towards them. Remember how I told you that Jesus is responding to the Pharisees about eating with sinners at the beginning? This is like the whole context of this whole passage. Jesus uses this whole parable as a way of saying, let me tell you about my father, the God who you claim to serve, the Pharisees. That's who, he tell, that's who he's telling, talking to you about this. Like, let me tell you about my father because I know him. I've been in relationship with him since the beginning of time. And he loves you. And he meets bitterness and rebellion with compassion. Church, and that's our God's response, is the same. It's met with compassion. In our rebellion, he is so patient and quick to restore us. In our bitterness towards others, he doesn't shame us. He reminds us of his love and allows us to see how he is working. That's his response. If you don't, know Jesus, or have a relationship with him, I implore you to put down whatever it is that's weighing you down. Eternal life can be yours today. All you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus died and resurrected for your sins. It's free. You don't have to go bartering before him and saying, oh, like, let me serve you in this way, God, for my eternal life. No, that's not how it is. Salvation is a free gift. You can come accept it today. I want to see all of y'all in heaven, right? I want to see all of y'all. And why reject it if you can experience that for free? It doesn't cost anything. If you're feeling this pulling sensation to come forward during worship, come. If you're feeling... uh, if you're feeling that, God is waiting for you here. Ridge, myself, or any of the other staff would love to walk you through this time. If you're feeling compelled, come find us. Why don't we respond in worship to our God this morning? So with that, I'm gonna go and wrap us up in prayer as we go into worship. So if you can bow your heads with me. Dear Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. God, thank you for reminding us that this morning. Thank you for reminding me of that.